Uh, first of all, I would like to thank you all for joining us on this very beautiful Thursday afternoon. It's amazing outside, so uh, thank you for coming and being part of this community. Today, it's my great pleasure to introduce Professor Carla Mulford, who teaches here at English, uh, in the English department here at Penn State. During my early graduate coursework, I had the opportunity to learn much from Professor Mulford about both the field of early American literature and about the profession of academia more generally. Carla Mulford teaches early modern, early American, and Native American studies at Pennsylvania State University, where she has been a faculty member since 1986, the organizer and then founding president of the Society of Early Americanists, Professor Mulford has also served the Executive Council of the Modern Language Association's Division of Early American Literature, sorry, American Literature to 1800, and she currently serves the Advisory Council of the McNeil Center for Early American Studies. Professor Mulford's more recent distinctions include a talk she gave at the National Archives in Washington, D.C. on Benjamin Franklin and the Treaty of Paris, which as an aside is available uh, via webcast on their website and her election this past spring to membership in the American Antiquarian Society. Election to membership in the society is a rare honor granted to scholars, public leaders, and others whose credentials, expertise, and experience meet the high standards set by existing members of the organization. 13 U.S. presidents have been members of the society. Fewer than 2,800 people have been members since it organized in 1812. There are 906 members currently in the society, 75 of whom have received the Pulitzer Prize uh, for their work. Professor Mulford has pointed out that she hopes this is a good omen for her own upcoming uh, <laughs> book on Benjamin Franklin. Uh, Carla Mulford has spent much of her career engaged in questioning the established canon of American literature by examining materials that until late, the late 20th century had not received much notice. Her published work on Benjamin Franklin, 13 essays so far, represents the range of her interest in Franklin. Her book in progress, Benjamin Franklin and the Ends of Empire, traces Franklin's attitudes about trade and populations in the context of the growing number of debates about what it meant to be both liberal and British during the 18th century. Her collection of essay, The Cambridge Companion to Benjamin Franklin, was published earlier this year in the spring of 2009. And may I present to you Professor Carla Mulford, who will be lecturing today on Benjamin Franklin and educational liberalism. That's me. I want to take a moment to thank my colleague, Sean Gowdy, for inviting me to participate in this important series associated with the Weiss Seminar, part of the programming made possible by a generous opportunity afforded us by our colleague, Linda Woodbridge, and the Josephine Barry Weiss um, Foundation. Linda is the um, Josephine Barry Weiss Chair in the Humanities, um, and Linda, working with Marika Tacconi three years ago, um, you know, figured out how to make a program that would work for our community um, and for our students as well. And so I'm very grateful to have, um, have been invited to be part of this program. 
I also want to make a personal note of thanks, however, to my mother, who's in the audience, <laughs> for showing me at a very early age the importance of reading and the importance of having the curiosity that enabled me to uh, mm, do the kinds of research necessary to get where I am today. I wanted to thank as well Ted Conklin, my husband, um, for making it possible for her to be here today. My presentation has three parts. The first part is um, a little uh, view of Franklin's life in pictures, I guess we could say. I'm going to do a brief review of commonly and not so commonly known portraits of Franklin in an attempt to reveal his character, his accomplishments in scientific enlightenment, what was then called natural philosophy, and his early fame, all of which served to establish by the end of the 18th century the importance of his educational models. I then will shift into my um, discussion today, um, Franklin's educational liberalism. My talk attempts to situate Franklin's educational views in the broader context of the liberalizing tendencies of his era. I'm interested in the stream of values, loosely called by scholars early modern liberalism, that Franklin embraced as he articulated his educational proposals in the middle of the 18th century in his proposal for an academy at Philadelphia, this was a college that became the University of Pennsylvania, and his idea of an English school for the city of Philadelphia, essentially a public school. I'm going to conclude with something I'm calling the legacies of Franklin's educational proposals. I'll speak very briefly at this point um, by way of conclusion to the educational legacy of proposals like Franklin's, a legacy apparent in the educational models embraced during the 19th and early 20th centuries, whether we're talking about moral acts, some would say morale acts of schools like Penn State, or schools in the university systems available here in the state of Pennsylvania. But first, let me just run through a few of my favorite shots of Franklin um, so that you can get a sense of his importance. Um, portraiture in the 18th century was just getting its start. The frequency and quality of Franklin's portraits, given that he's an American, is something um, worth our note um, before we consider um, some specific aspects of his educational liberalism. This portrait is the, our first known portrait of Franklin. It's probably from the 1730s, um, late 1730s, uh, early 1740s. It's, um, uh, art historian Wayne Craven has remarked about the relative plainness of Franklin's dress and Franklin's, what Craven calls, plain and unpretentious manner when compared to portraits of this era, suggesting that the portrait reflects the values of the subject, that one seeks a decent competency and independence, not for show, but for the ease of pursuing other more important personal goals. That is, uh, Franklin is not, you know, bespattered with lace. Um, this is not a velvet coat. Um, this is a very plain dress, um, which would have been unusual for someone even in Franklin Station, even in this era. Franklin's renown was made possible because of his uh, electrical experiments. And so um, when his friend, um, Peter Collinson published in London in 1751 Franklin's findings with regard to electricity. This is really what set the stage for Franklin's um, fame uh, in Europe. 
Um, it wasn't uh, Franklin's educational proposals, rather his um, experiments in electricity and in the practical sciences um, made it possible for Franklin to become the statesman, um, the important uh, representative of the um, then colonies that he became. This one's dark. Um, perhaps if I tell you what happened to it, you'll understand why. This portrait is probably from around 1760. It's by Benjamin Wilson. The portrait was hanging alongside one of Deborah Reed Franklin in the Franklin's home in Philadelphia in 1778 during the siege by British forces. Franklin's, uh, Benjamin Franklin's um, picture was taken as a prize of war by Major Andre during the British occupation. It was owned by the Earls of Albemarle, Quidnam Hall, Norfolk for a century and a half. It was finally restored to the United States. It hangs in the diplomatic reception rooms um, of the U.S. Department of State in Washington, D.C. has an incredible history. I wonder, is it possible to lower the lights up here so that the, because um, I've got a light here and have, I wonder if, does that help? Does that help those in the audience? I'm fine with that. Yes, very good, very good. Thank you very much, Rob. You can see it now, yeah. This also, you know, he's in a relatively plain coat here. Um, now we begin to see the Franklin that is more familiar to us. Um, this is a portrait of 1762 by Mason Chamberlain. Chamberlain, a leading portraitist and founding member of the Royal Academy of London, created this portrait as a commission by a friend. Franklin liked the portrait very much, as it was the first to show Franklin's work in discovering the positive and negative electrical charges, um, what we today call electricity. Um, the storm outside, I should say, just point out, in case you hadn't noticed it, but I, it's just a lovely, lovely portrait. The storm outside is ringing the bells inside. Um, the bells are hooked to a lightning rod. Franklin's house was actually set up this way. It, it drove Deborah Reed Franklin crazy. She finally told him quite triumphantly, and he was over in uh, England at the time, I finally have disconnected your bells. They were driving us crazy. Um, prior to that, she had spent um, her time recording during lightning storms the number of times that the bells um, rang in the household. Franklin admired this portrait because it did feature his, um, that portrait, the Chamberlain portrait, because it did feature his electrical experiments. Um, and so um, there were a series of mezzotints made of it. This one happens to be a 1763 mezzotint by Edward Fisher. It was one of Franklin's favorite likenesses, one he distributed to friends and family members to show the esteem in which he was held for his electrical experiments. This is maybe my favorite portrait. It's by David Martin, 1767. It's called the Thumb Portrait of Franklin. It was originally commissioned by the Scottish merchant Robert Alexander while Franklin was living in London. Franklin liked the portrait, had a copy of it made for himself. The bust of Newton in the background, that's Newton, supposed to be Newton, underscores the importance of Franklin's scientific findings and associates their importance with Newton's own experiments. This uh, is hanging in the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts, if you should be interested in seeing it in person. This is perhaps, you know, the most famous uh, portrait of Franklin, done in 1778 by Joseph uh, Siffry Duplessis. It was once owned by Franklin's French host, 
Jacques Donatien Le Ray de Chaumont was so admired by Franklin as a likeness that he encouraged artists to make copies of it rather than forcing him to sit endlessly for portraits. He was uh, famous by this uh, time as a negotiator. It was completed the year Franklin was pre presented to the French court. The original gilded oval frame has an olive branch for peace, a laurel branch for victory, a liberty cap, a lion skin for Britain, and the single word vir, man. I love this portrait. Franklin's in a private, a sort of afternoon suit, um, dressed for private company, probably made around 1778 or 79. The portrait is by Anne-Rosalie Anne-Rosalie Fouilleux and her husband, Louis Fouilleux, were Paris acquaintances of Franklin. The portrait was created specifically as a model for an engraving by Louis-Jacques Catelin and published by Fouilleux's brother, Blaise Bouquet. It was exhibited at the French Salon of 1779, and the en eventual engraving was praised for its likeness of Franklin. And this is one where outsiders are talking about its likeness. So we have a sense that this may indeed have been what Franklin looked like um, when dressed for company, um, afternoon company, 1778-79. Um, I like it too. This is from 1777. It's an engraving. It's a portrait print by Augustin de Saint-Aubin after Charles-Nicolas uh, Cochin, one of the first images of Franklin made available in France popularly, made within a few weeks of his arrival in Paris. The, and this, he was arriving in Paris um, to engage in negotiations uh, with France, a treaty of amity. The print at the time was referred to as a representation of the New World ambassador. Franklin's fur cap became a sensation in Paris. Everybody wanted to wear fur caps. The French people associated it with Rousseau's fur hat, Rousseau donned a fur hat. And then it all just skyrockets from there, literally. This is called Le Docteur Franklin, Coroné par la Liberté, 1778. It's an aquatint by Abbé Jean-Richard Claude de Saint-Nom made on site at the artist's home to demonstrate to Franklin the process of aquatint making. Franklin sits on the hemisphere representing the New World, crowned with roses by the figure of liberty. The picture uses a scroll recalling the constitutions of the colonies to celebrate Franklin as both legislator and liberator. Note the picture's high central point depicts a liberty cap on a liberty pole. Um, the figure became very important during the French Revolution. Eugénie de Franklin, around 1778, an etching by Marguerite Gerard after Jean-Honoré Jean Fragonard, an allegorical print epitomizing the French view of Franklin. Anne-Robert Jacques Turgot's famous dictum, he snatched lightning from the skies, the scepter from tyrants, was the inscription on the print at the time. Next is a famous Houdon bust of Franklin. It's really a death, it's made from a death mass of Franklin, not produced from a sitting. It was admired by Franklin and other, I'm sorry, it was uh, taken from a wax mask of Franklin, um, admired by Franklin and others in his day. Houdon was a leading portrait sculptor during the 18th century who was friends with Franklin. 
This, this one is perhaps best known to Americans. Um, this was um, imitated and struck um, up upon stamps during the 19th century um, in the United States. This is Benjamin West's very small um, uh, picture of uh, Franklin drawing lightning from the sky, probably made around 1816. Um, Benjamin West, America's and England's most celebrated painter, first met Franklin in Philadelphia long before this painting was executed. This small painting was intended as a study for a large painting intended for but never commissioned for the Pennsylvania Hospital. I'm returning us to the first portrait of Franklin. Um, it's the portrait by Robert Feek um, because it's in this era that fr when Franklin was attempting to represent himself as a modest working man who made it, and that's what this portrait um, declares to us um, in terms of mm, the signals it tells us based in art history. Um, and this is roughly the era from which his educational proposals emerged. I'm just going to run you through. This is the title page of his proposal relating to the education of youth in Pennsylvania. This is the proposal that be, um, you know, became the proposal that eventually established what we did today call the University of Pennsylvania. Then um, his idea of the English school, a similar proposal, roughly the same time, proposal for um, public education for the city of Philadelphia. Franklin's idea was that many people could be like him. Uh, we tend to make fun of this sometimes when we talk about the autobiography. But Franklin, while he acknowledged his was a singular life experience, um, Franklin nonetheless felt that with proper training, um, all people could aspire to have some of the same kinds of achievements as, uh, as those he had. This is a page of the Pennsylvania Gazette where he first um, publicized his proposals for the Academy of Philadelphia. And I decided just to give you a little, as a little snippet. Um, uh, presumably, uh, this is... Um, by Pliny Jr. to Cornelius Tacitus, a conversation with a sprightly young man about the difficulty of finding good teachers and quality education in the country locally um, and why that needed to be remedied. So even when he wasn't making these proposals, he was writing little stories um, that, uh, importantly to his thinking, um, clarified um, the necessity for uh, producing educated citizens in Pennsylvania. I'm going to turn now to my talk, Franklin and Educational Liberalism. One of the chief outcomes of my book in progress, Benjamin Franklin and the Ends of Empire, is its tracking of Franklin's ideological underpinnings in and departures from the economists natural, and natural philosophers of his era, particularly with regard to a cluster of attitudes that have been taken to re represent early modern liberalism. I'm attempting to show the extent to which Franklin, for much of his life, was working in an intellectual context that was British and European, and an ideological context that harbored values he'd learned from his youth, values that we today associate with the liberalism that evolved into early, uh, in the early modern era in Britain. During the wars of the four kingdoms in England, sometimes still called the English Civil Wars, England was racked by oppressive measures related to taxation, military expenses, and religion. 
Some historians suggest that wars over religion in England lasted so long because of the wars taking place throughout Europe as a result of the Reformation. The internal warfare taking place in England brought about a situation in which people started to speak in behalf of their personal rights in the face of an oppressive sovereign and in light of philosophical writings that again and again promulgated the idea that individuals, when born, are born equal in the state of nature. If all humans are born equal, then any relationship with others wherein their individual rights are taken from them is a relationship that they should, by natural right, be able to contest. This is the source of the era's central argument against personal, social, and political oppression. Many people were seeking to have freedom of conscience in the face of an oppressive state and its state religion. These people, dissenters from the established system, were made to feel more and more unwelcome during the 17th and 18th century, and many moved out of England in search of a better situation. Benjamin Franklin's father and his mother, both of whose families dissented from the established religion in England, left England at a time when they could no longer abide the oppressions they faced economically, socially, and politically. They settled amid, amid like-minded Britons in Boston, and they taught their children the importance of freedom of conscience and the other freedoms that came to be espoused during the era of the American Revolution against Britain. Some of the core values of Benjamin Franklin's mature liberalism lie in the insistence on individual dignity, the essential equality of all persons as social and political agents, the necessity for freedom of inquiry and freedom of expression, and the centrality of the freedom of labor, that one could own one, one's own labor, to the function of both local and global communities. Those values I consider to be the core values of Franklin's mature liberalism arose from his understanding of many of the philosophers, scientists, and social theorists whose writings emerged <coughs> during an era of significant change in England. These writers, generally known as writers in the British Commonwealth tradition, spoke their generation's understanding of the essential character of individual liberty, that is, the right to dispose of one's person and one's property, as an inherent natural right. Nearly a century after these writers flourished, and at a time when the essential liberties they spoke of were being challenged by economic and social problems resulting from an era of rampant mercantilism that produced serious inflation, Franklin wrote in behalf of and created institutions that evoked the older form of liberalism he'd come to admire and wished England would return to. The era of mercantilism, roughly from the 1680s through the 1730s, enabled individuals to gain great wealth. Their wealth was gained often at the expense of the very people, the presumed commonwealth, that made their wealth possible. While Franklin supported the idea that individuals ought to be free to gain wealth, he followed the older line of liberal thinking that suggested that individuals also had an obligation to their country for what he often called love of country to use their abilities, their know-how, and their financial support to assist the social formation, the whole community, instead of themselves alone. In examining his attitudes about liberal education 
and his plans for an academy at Philadelphia, we are afforded a glimpse of the ways in which Franklin considered such liberal thought could be fostered for youth. Among the cornerstones sought, um, reforms sought by writers of the Commonwealth tradition that fascinated Benjamin Franklin are freedom of thought and educational opportunity, as these related to discourses about general civil and religious liberties following the so-called Glorious Revolution of 1688. In affiliation with Francis Bacon and new scientific theories, and on the heels of the liberal political and social changes that began to occur in the latter part of the 17th century, educational philosophy during the 18th century tended to have root in three motives. To foster Protestant religion, to memorialize intellectual traditions and promote intellectual freedom, and to create the possibility for new inventions to assist everyday life. John Milton in Of Education and Areopagitica, both from the 1640s, and John Locke in Some Thoughts Concerning Education, 1693, are now perhaps the best known of a number of Commonwealth writers who argued for freedom of information and educational reform. But Milton and Locke were not alone in their positions about a greater political and fiscal potential arising to the British nation if a greater number of people could receive educational training. Arguments in behalf of charity schools emerged from Daniel Defoe's pen in his Essays on Projects in 1697, for example, at the same time that Milton's and Locke's treatises were being circulated in manuscript and print at the end of the 17th century. Charity schools increased in number across Britain as the 18th century continued. At the time that Benjamin Franklin created the character Silence Do Good, the figure who would become a mouthpiece for the young Franklin's own liberal critique of the colonial, elites, colonial elite status quo in Boston. He was giving expression to liberal ideas that were being circulated and incorporated into British systems on the other side of the Atlantic. Silence Do Good's central positions about education were twofold. First, she didn't favor the colonial colleges, Harvard in particular, because she didn't admire their purpose to train men for religious ministry and she did not think useful the classical training students were receiving. Silence also did not consider that education ought to be for the colonial elite and descendants of first founders alone. Franklin, through his character Silence Duguid, used his little series of 1722 newspaper essays in his brother James Franklin's New England Current to inform the readership of the liberal stances toward education taken in some part of Old England. The primary argument behind Silence Duguid's critique was that education ought to be generally available, pragmatic in its goals, and available to young women as well as to young men. This was an era when young men were typically schooled, so I'll speak more fully about my last point regarding Franklin's interest in informing the Boston populace that women ought to be educated. The text is Silence Duguid's essay number five. In reproof of a fictional correspondent who had complained to Silence that she should write about women's ignorance and folly instead of matters of society and especially about what takes place in colleges, Silence remarked in her fifth number, I'm quoting, and now for the ignorance and folly which he, this correspondent, reproaches women with, let us see if we are fools and ignoramuses, whose is the fault, the men's or ours? She quotes an ingenious writer, and she's quoting Daniel Defoe, who, I'm quote, this is, Defoe, you know, this ingenious writer Defoe, lays the fault wholly on the men for not allowing women the advantages of education. 
In separate chapters on, of his essays on projects, 1797, Defoe had spent some time speaking of charity schools and of the importance of women's education. Franklin's ironically named silence paraphrases a section of Defoe's argument regarding women's training. I have, says he, this ingenious writer Defoe, and so this is a man's voice speaking, I've often thought of it as one of the most barbarous customs in the world, considering us, England, as a civilized and Christian country, that we deny the advantages of learning to women. We reproach the sex every day with folly and impertinence. While I am confident, had they the advantages of education equal to men, they would be guilty of less than ourselves. Silence paraphrasing Defoe declaims against women's circumscribed learning. One would wonder, indeed, how it should happen that women are conversable at all since they are only beholding to natural parts for all their knowledge. Their youth is spent to teach them to stitch and sew or make baubles. They are taught to read, indeed, and perhaps to write their names or sew. And that is the height of a woman's education. And I would but ask any who slight the sex for their understanding, what is a man, a gentleman, I mean, good for, that is taught no more? What has the woman done to forfeit the privilege of being taught? Why did we not let her learn that she might have had more wit? Defoe and Franklin are both attesting to newer currents of thinking regarding education, and especially education for women who were not afforded the range of educational opportunities afforded to men. While women of the elite group in England and the colonies received private tutoring at home, most other young women, if they received any training beyond rudimentary skills, were taught sometimes by the family pastor, but more often by their mothers. Traditionally, they learned the rudiments of reading and writing so that they could read the Bible and perhaps at best write out their family names, months of the year, and household inventories. The pattern in Old England tended to be the pattern in the British colonies, except that the colonies were slower to develop boarding schools, which in England became common by mid-century. Women who did not work as indentured or slave labor in households or trades tended to have a greater degree of language ability than their laboring counterparts. Even so, however, learned women, women whose accomplishments extended beyond their household needs, were somewhat rare, although clearly not altogether rare, as evidenced by the women in Franklin's own family. The clear difference between Defoe and Franklin taken together when compared with Milton and Locke is that both Defoe and Franklin tended to speak in behalf of education for common people, as Silence Duguid did in putting Defoe's essays on projects to use. Milton and Locke were writing primarily about the tutoring of men headed for university. By contrast, Defoe and Franklin used the press to articulate a liberalizing political and cultural agenda supporting sets of freedoms for the more general population, freedoms that had been formulated and under discussion in Britain and Europe for over half a century. Franklin used his press to instruct his readership in British policies and British liberties, encouraging the population to learn the laws by which they were being ruled and the means by which they inherited British liberties from their forebears. Among the freedoms Franklin most often expressed were those related to what we now can characterize as the foundations of early modern liberalism. And here I'm going to list them. The right to hold property, the right to choose political representatives who should serve the people rather than themselves, the right to have fair and equal treatment before the law, 
the right to public expression free of even the fear of incarceration, the right to the free practice of or no practice of religion, and the right to educational access and information. In the last, his support of an inherent right to education and information, Franklin is among the most noteworthy colonial British Americans who argued in behalf of these liberal rights. His goal was to promote education for common people, and he did so under what seems to have been a common operative assumption that general practical knowledge served a social function. Franklin's formal educational models are available to us in his academy uh, proposal. I'm going to go back again. His academy proposal, proposals relating to the education of youth, 1749, and his idea of an English school, sketched out for the consideration of the trustees of the Philadelphia Academy. He wanted this public school associated with the Academy of Philadelphia, 1751. In the academy proposal, that is the proposal for the university, in the academy proposal, proposal for a school of what we today would call higher learning, Franklin supported training in the traditional programs of higher learning, classical languages, ancient philosophy, history, theoretical mathematics, and astronomy. But he also supported foundational training in what were less than tradi traditional uh, areas, the English language, modern languages such as French, Spanish, and German, modern, that is, contemporary history and natural philosophy rather than classical history or in addition to classical history, and the mechanic arts, arts that artisans use, laborers use. The mechanic arts included geography, natural history, measurement and surveying, and animal and plant husbandry, including, I'm quoting, gardening, planting, grafting, inoculating, etc. He recommended, I'm quoting, now and then excursions made to the neighboring plantations, and there he just meant farms, um, excursions made to the neighboring plantations of the best farmers, their methods observed and reasoned upon for the information of all youth, the improvement of agriculture being useful to all, and skill in it no disparagement to any. And in a particularly Franklinian expression, he remarked, as to their studies, it would be well if they could be taught everything that is useful and everything that is ornamental. But art is long, and their time is short. It is therefore proposed that they learn those things that are likely uh, to be most useful and most ornamental, regard being had to the several professions for which they are intended. The proposal for the school, the idea of the English school, sketched out for consideration of the trustees, featured similar practical training in the English language, letters, and the mechanical arts. This was uh, revolutionary in Franklin's day. Both of Franklin's proposals have been praised by Franklinists and by education historians for their expressed goals of training those outside of elite circles. Yet in some ways, Franklin's proposals, while surprising from a New Englander, are fairly representative of the more liberal views in England and indeed in Pennsylvania in some of their assumptions about the content of the training for working and middling level people, especially in Franklin's insistence that the training should offer content of use to the student. In England, for example, John Locke had argued in Some Thoughts Concerning Education, 1693, that practical sciences and the English language and other modern languages ought to be taught. 
In the Pennsylvania colony, William Penn had long advocated what he called guarded education, that is, educated related to religion and morality, emphasizing fair writing, reading, the most useful parts of mathematics, and vocational training through useful arts and sciences suitable to their young people's sex, age, and degree. Penn's frame of government, 1682, for the governance of Pennsylvania province, provided for public schools, offering premiums to authors of useful sciences and laudable inventions. He was adamant, Penn, against false knowledge, which he characterized by an emphasis on words, grammar, rhetoric, and Latin and Greek, because these, 10 to 1, may never be useful to them. And that's a quotation. His primary concern, Penn's, was providing information in the natural and mechanical sciences. Thomas Budd, in a text called Good Order Established, published in Philadelphia in 1685, promoted the ideas that schools would do well to offer all the most useful arts and sciences, but should also offer formal training in the English language, Latin, and other useful speeches and languages, as well as arithmetic and bookkeeping. We can see an emphasis upon usefulness was central to educational content in the Pennsylvania colony. When boys were sent from school, they were to learn trades. Girls were to learn domestic economy. What is most striking in the history of education, of course, is that Quakers allowed for training young men and young women both, and they made common education available to students regardless of their social status and country or province of origin. Quaker Anthony Benazay's schools, along with schools developed by the Progressive Anglican Associates of Dr. Brave London, designed for enslaved and free young people of African descent, were rare and struggling, but nonetheless successful schools along a liberal model of educational equity. In Philadelphia, Thomas Budd had a special concern for fostering the commercial life of the province and for reducing ignorance. So it would seem did Samuel Keimer, Franklin's first employer in Philadelphia. In 1724, Samuel Keimer reprinted the independent wig of London. John Trenchard and Thomas Gordon, writers in the Commonwealth tradition, seemed to Keimer the most useful representatives of liberty. And so, for the public good, Keimer offered them in an effort to reduce the ignorance and superstition among the people of Philadelphia because they, that is, uh, Trenchard and Gordon, were writing for the good of mankind in general. He decided to re-reprint the selections that had been offered in England by Robert Molesworth for, Molesworth for the benefit and delight of those who have any relish for useful knowledge and are not contented to be led blindfold into the boggy mazes of ignorance and superstition. This liberal turn into secularism in Philadelphia created an important space for Franklin's own activities as a printer and leader of the colony and later a sponsor of educational programs. A turn into secularism characterized many writers on education in England and the middle colonies during the first quarter of the 18th century. Their writings tended to embrace an anti-theological and anti-classical cast of thinking. This, uh, in his Philadelphia newspaper, The American Weekly Mercury, Franklin's competitor, Andrew Bradford, had in the 1730s printed an anonymous letter essay, Some Thoughts on Education, that supported a program of vernacular training and non-classical instruction to a middling level student population. 
beginning with the interest of the Quakers and then extending into these more secular proposals, vernacular education, even if only to acculturate the ethnically mixed population of the Pennsylvania colony. Vernacular education seems to have been a desirable form of education well into the 18th century in Philadelphia. Both of Franklin's school proposals represented his mature vision about education, one he'd been developing for 30 years. The foundational goals behind the academy and the English school followed along lines similar to those established in his proposal for promoting useful knowledge among the British plantations. This is his proposal for the American Philosophical Society in 1743. In his call for the formation of the American Philosophical Society, Franklin had considered that the colonies should be fostering useful studies, such as botany, along with natural philosophy, mathematics, mechanical inventions, geography, and animal husbandry. In essence, I'm quoting, all philosophical experiments that let light into the nature of things tend to increase power of man over matter and multiply the conveniencies or pleasures of life. His academy and English school proposals of 1749 and 51 likewise worked out plans to instruct students in the pleasures of English language arts, British history, and modern useful knowledge, in addition to the more traditional classical fare of most schools. Despite the similarity of Franklin's proposals to those expressed by liberal philosophers in Britain and in Philadelphia, Franklin's plans were accepted but not fully implemented in his own day. One wonders why. Franklin's plans clearly had a two-vernacular thrust that proved troublesome to members of the Philadelphia elite who were as concerned with what was called ornamental knowledge as with mechanical knowledge. Franklin had attempted to make the roots of his educational plans credible to his readers, especially those of the elite from whom he was seeking funds by offering in the Academy proposal voluminous footnotes attesting to the educational philosophies of Britons, Europeans, and even an ancient scholar. He mentioned and noted writings or commentaries by John Milton, John Locke, David Fordyce, uh, Francis Hutchinson, Obadiah Walker, Charles Rollin, George Turnbull, Jean-Francois Simon, and Pliny, all of whose writings supported different points Franklin offered regarding the content and sources that would be taught. Yet Franklin was unsuccessful in securing funds for all the aspects of his proposals that he sought to fulfill. As Franklin reported much later in his autobiography, he had begun the Academy proposal prior to the one for the Philosophical Society, but the Academy proposal languished for nearly a decade on the desks of the men he had approached to help establish his Academy. The plan was eventually funded but not with an interest in fostering Franklin's approach to vernacular education. Indeed, the Academy's trustees attended to, but then eventually discarded entirely, the vernacular thrust of Franklin's proposals, letting funding for the English language and writing master slip, along with funding for several of the mechanical studies Franklin supported. This is not surprising in hindsight, as education for, of the general population might have wrested leadership control from existing elite group families. Class and ethnic dissension was increasing in Philadelphia during the century, exacerbated by increased immigration from Britain and Europe. By mid-century, the wealthiest strata of Philadelphia, roughly 10% of the population of families born to wealth, along with the uppermost level of well-established merchants, people like Franklin here in this portrait. They were interested in supporting ornamental knowledge, a knowledge base that distinguished their wealth more than mechanical knowledge. 
The elite sought all the markers of tradition, the study of classical languages rather than modern languages, readings in classical Greek and Roman literature rather than modern writers, demonstrable regard for oratory and the philosophy of classical rhetoric. Such markers of classical learning would separate them as a class from the growing number of successful middling people, people like Franklin, new merchants, tradespeople, and mechanics, small shopkeepers, and all of those who possess technical skills who might have aspired to leadership positions. And here I'm just going to turn briefly and by way of conclusion to the legacies of Franklin's educational thinking. I'm hoping that for some Penn Staters in the audience, where I'm going with this may be clear, I hope. Franklin surely must have assumed that, where the wealthiest were concerned, his plan for training in classical traditions would secure an interest to his proposal, which included parallel and complementary training in English studies and the mechanical sciences. Franklin mentioned two groups of the potential students before he mentioned more traditional students, those interested in divinity, in a section pointing out the importance of the study of the best modern histories, particularly of our mother country, then those of the colonies, along with some of the best histories of nature. Franklin suggested that all students, merchants, handicrafts, and that would be artisans, and divines, would delight in these studies. The proposal was accepted, plan followed, but the English and modern language, modern history sides of Franklin's proposal, along with the emphasis upon the study of agriculture and husbandry, they suffered from inattention, and perhaps an inability to find an English master and learned agriculturalist suitable for the rigor of the program Franklin wished to foster. In most ways, in his own time, Franklin's ancillary instruments of education overshadowed his formal educational program as outlined in the two proposals I've been discussing. By ancillary instruments of education, I'm referring to his educational projects that existed apart from the established formal schools. Franklin's Junto, the Library Company, the American Philosophical Society, and the printing houses he established and fostered all contributed toward similar educational goals that his formal school proposals um, sought to create. Franklin's Hunto, for instance, which originated as a working man's educational outlet, was designed chiefly to assist leather apron men, artisans, in intellectual and cultural self-improvement. The library company, designed for individuals, especially laboring men, to borrow each other's books, made it possible to share knowledge and open up avenues of inquiry that might not otherwise have been sought. The American Philosophical Society was designed to foster experimentation and the sharing of papers in scientific and natural philosophy. The printing houses he established were designed to circulate information and news. All of these projects signal Franklin's educational philosophy, that an educated citizenry is a citizenry that will more likely wish for peace and financial security. Among Franklin's education-promoting endeavors, however, I believe the printing house to have been Franklin's most important venue for education of the general citizenry, especially in light of the absence of avail available formal training for both men and women. Franklin used print to inform and educate the citizenry as to its rights and obligations. And in this, I tend to agree with the scholar of Benedict Anderson, who long ago pointed to Franklin's deployment of the printing press as a signal means by which new citizens could be called into being. Franklin had proposed practical training and training in the agricultural and mechanic arts. Philadelphians were unready at the time to consider the costs to the Commonwealth of not educating most people. 
When the Morrill Act, the Morrill Act, whichever way you want to call it, when the Morrill Act was proposed and accepted by the middle of the 19th century, 1862, we're talking about 1860s, you know, well over, you know, a century later, um, we have sets of programs that begin to mimic the kind of um, programs Franklin was interested in fostering much earlier. It seems then, when the Morrill Act was proposed and accepted, as if the general population in the United States was finally ready to accept that the majority of the citizenry ought to be educated beyond the rudiments of reading and writing. I believe that the Morrill Act was perceived as feasible in the 1860s because of a variety of pressures on the social formation that prompted concern about social and economic stability. Uh, first, the pressure of so many new Americans new immigrants the government um, wanted to uh, assimilate, N new births, greater longevity. Two, problems of health and social control, especially in the urban centers. Three, poverty in rural areas. Four, gov the governmental goals of settling Indian country to assure the displacement of the indigenous, popu indigenous populations to reservations. Franklin considered education a central means for social amelioration and economic and social stability. His goals were realized over a century and a half after he made his proposals, when Abraham Lincoln signed the Morrill Act into law on uh, July 2nd, 1862. And that's the conclusion of my talk. I actually um, did just want to say, you know, that um, Penn State, um, the Commonwealth chartered Penn State in 1855 for the purpose of bringing modern science to bear in making agriculture more product productive and efficient. In 1863, the General Assembly designated Penn State as the Commonwealth's sole land-grant institution. I actually think that it was Franklin's reputation. His autobiography was circulated numerous times. His image circulated numerous times. Um, his image on coins, um, on stamps, helped um, pave the way for the Morrill Act to be made, um, made feasible. Um, it, it troubles me a bit that it took Pennsylvania until the 1860s to 1850s to begin to charter uh, a school like that that Franklin um, sought to foster in Philadelphia. But I'm grateful that we did, in fact, antedate many of the other similar Morrill Act schools that um, later, you know, developed in the 1860s and 1870s. Thank you very much. A good, good amount of time for some questions. And uh, I, I'm going to ask you again to use the mic, if you would, um, partly because of the size of the venue. Uh, some people may not be able to hear, but we're also we're taping the uh, lectures, and thus the sound is useful as a way. OK. Do I need to be yeah. up there? Is that? Yeah. I just don't know if you're doing a thing. You talked about the University of Pennsylvania. When was it founded? It, um, it got uh, chartered, actually, in the 1760s. It actually started programs in the 1780s and 1790s, you know, sort of a stream of programs. You know, the, the difficulty for me about the University of Pennsylvania um, and its, 
you know, it's chartering I, of course, love, but, it, but, but what actually happened to Franklin's proposal is that um, precisely the elite-oriented programs that Franklin, you know, was trying to balance with um, pragmatic programs, um, those elite uh, classical training, they were the ones that eventually got sponsored. People wanted to have that educational marker as a sign that, um, that they had made it. Um, and so, um, you know, they wanted to compete with Harvard and Yale, with the College of Princeton, which was across the river, um, the College of William and Mary. And all of those schools had a significant amount of training um, in, in, in classical, um, you know, the trivium and quadrivium. Um, and this was uh, classical history, not modern history, classical languages, not modern languages, um, and non-mechanic arts. Uh, the, the arts like the ones we're celebrating here today, um, rather than um, agricultural arts, um, leather apron men kinds of activities. Thank you for the question. In your uh, discussion, a number of times you uh, try to pronounce Morel Act or Moral Act. Yeah, how do you and pronounce I guess, it? I don't know, and I guess I want to ask you a question. I assume that it was it was uh, named after a person, maybe yes. a congressman, and I was um, curious whether uh, you knew who, the, who that person would be and any background about that person. Um, it, there's a significant amount of information on our website, and I'm forgetting his name. I want to say James, um, and it was a proposal to Congress in um, 1860, and it was finally signed into law in 1862. Um, I have always, I had always said um, Morrill Act because it is spelled M-O-R-R-I-L-L -L, and it looks like Morrill Act to me. However, I was corrected by Michael Kamen. I don't know if you know of his work. He's a historian at Cornell University. And um, Michael said, no, you know, um, when you look at the records and you look at the misspellings of the name when people started talking about um, the act in Congress, you have a sense that it was actually pronounced um, moral. Um, I have difficulty with that just because it sounds like moral virtue, you know, stuff like that. And I'm really talking about a person who proposed these to, con you know, um, this act of yeah, Congress. Yeah, you answered my second question, which leads me to a third. Just quickly, uh, Congressman Morell, or where, where is he from? What state? Do you have any idea? I don't know that. I don't Thank know you. that. I used to know that, but honestly, I, 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 I didn't check my notes on that. The, um, the, um, let me tell you about something. Um, we actually, if you do a search on Penn State's website, if you go to the web and do a web search, you'll come up with um, a couple of um, statements related to the Morrill Act and um, uh, President Spanier's representations to the Pennsylvania State. So you'll see the ways in which, in his own arguments, um, pre our pre the university president, Spanier, is trying to draw upon the land-grant status and a very special status. We are a commonwealth institution. We are one of four institutions. Um, um, Lincoln, uh, Temple, uh, Pitt, and Penn State are called commonwealth institutions. We at Penn State are the sole land-grant um, institution. And so um, it is on that basis that President Spanier has been attempting to work with um, members in the Pennsylvania State Legislature um, for uh, special recognition of Penn State's mission. 
Um, but um, I want to say there is a beautiful um, web page and archive uh, made available to us in the Special Collections Library web page. So if you do a search um, either in the library's um, search page itself or just go to the Penn State web, they actually have a year-by-year -year portrait of um, the startup of um, Pennsylvania State University and the way it affiliated with Moral Act goals. It's a really nice website. We have a, a really nice um, um, information there. So I'm sorry I can't ask, answer your question about the first name. My tenants used to want to say he's from Virginia, but of that, I, I'd, like, I'd love to say he's a Pennsylvanian, but I don't think he is. My recollection is that he was a Virginian. Does anybody know? Anybody happen to have come out who knows educational history in the state? Sorry, I can't answer it. Uh, there was a suggestion in the talk how uh, Franklin's educational liberalism is related to his background or at least to his perception of his background as a working man who made it. How is it compared with the background of Daniel Defoe or background of more well-known 17th century thinkers? Mm -hmm. Defoe, um, Defoe's background was like Franklin's. Um, Defoe uh, essentially separated from his family. He became a printer and he was um, Defoe, how many pamphlets did he write? About 200 pamphlets, I think. You know, he was extremely, um, he was both castigated and celebrated as a writer. His um, politics about print um, were politics that Franklin adopted. Um, and um, those, what I was calling, calling politics, maybe I should say ideology, um, his position was uh, like Franklin's, that print ought to foster um, the potential for people to better themselves. He published on all kinds of things, you know, um, Journal of the Plague Year. Um, he published novels. Um, and he, you know, um, because he separated from his family, his, fa his name was really Foe, and then he made a default. To, you know, sort of make himself as a writer. Um, he wanted to be a public writer and, um, and became so. Um, and so in that regard, uh, Franklin is similar, similar goals. Thank you so much for your um, for your Thank speech. Thank you for I, coming, I, Bonnie. I really, yeah, I really enjoy it. It's very illuminating um, to hear all these aspects of Franklin. And being from Philadelphia myself, I am just completely blown away with the perceptions that I had of Franklin versus his actual, um, you know, the text of his autobiography and really the things that, you know, he's not just the jolly man from the mm -hmm. Franklin Mills Mall ads. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, he's mostly not the yeah, jolly man. Not at all. <laughs> not at all. Exactly. No, not at all. But. Um, um, but specifically, I'm really fascinated with, um, you know, I, maybe calling him a man of contradictions might be a little too intense, but certainly a man of tensions. And I, I guess I'm wondering if you could speak to um, this idea that he's for educational uh, liberalism, but yet posing for these pictures or at least, mm -hmm. you know, represented in these, in the aquatints that you had showed us or the, mm -hmm. the allegorical prints of him in these robes and, you know, mm -hmm. it's very Grecian, very godlike and mm -hmm. I wanted to, to hear. Perfect question. <laughs> and I, I agree with you. I think the word tension um, is a perfect word to um, describe Franklin. Franklin in his autobiography, which is perhaps his most frequently read text, um, Franklin's autobiography actually circulated after he died. Um, um, and Franklin, in his autobiography, is the last version of himself that um, he wanted to present um, to the population. Franklin loved being in Britain. He loved being an ambassador. 
when he um, first set up shop in Paris um, to be the ambassador to, uh, Par ambassador to Paris during these treaty negotiations, um, the immense lists of things that were brought into the homestead include a certain number of pens and paper. Um, he created his own printing press and finally created um, his own paper manufactory there on site so he would be able to print um, the private negotiations that were taking place. But beef, mutton, crates and crates of wine, cheeses, coffee servers in silver, please. Um, so, I mean, you know, um, he loved his status. I think probably, you know, um, I sort of put it together that he earned his status, you know, so he earned that luxury um, even, you know, as he promoted this sort of um, almost primitive lifestyle, the joke about the autobiography I can think of right now that may ring true for some of you if you've read the autobiography is that he, you know, he used to love to tell the story about Deborah Reed Franklin. Um, it's the China Bowl and Silver Spoon story um, that, uh, you know, he pretends that Deborah Reed presented him with a China Bowl and Silver Spoon and he um, said, no, 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 you know, I, I really prefer an earthen porringer and wooden spoon. Um, the fact is, his letters from precisely this time indicate that he was really chiding um, Deborah Reed Franklin, um, but mostly his um, daughter Sally Franklin, for asking for luxuries at a time when the colonies were supposed to be presenting a pose of austerity. So there's, you know, there's the tension writ large that this is a very successful man, maybe successful because of his um, stance of, um, you know, of, of being a working man. He often signed the legal documents in behalf of the United States. Um, Benjamin Franklin printer. He wanted to remind people that he had been what were called then a leather apron man. Um, even though, you know, there he sits in David Mart Martin's portrait um, in velvet. It's a blue velvet coat, the thumb portrait I mentioned earlier. Um, um, you know, very, very um, dressy afternoon coat uh, for meeting company. Good question, and yes, this was a person who had many, many tensions, and in the contradictions in the writing um, reveal that to be so. I know, area. I know Franklin wrote a piece despairing or perhaps observing that English was rapidly becoming, if not the, the second language, the German, because of the huge influx of immigrants. Mm -hmm. Did that in any way influence his desire to create an educational system that emphasized the English language? Yeah, I, you know, um, I, do, I do believe it did. Um, and I take this up in, in my book. Um, Franklin, you know, people who are interested in Pennsylvania German history tend to castigate Franklin for trying to assimilate the Germans. Um, in the city of Philadelphia in the 1740s into the 1750s, Germans out, uh, German speakers outnumbered English speakers by four to one. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Um, they they well, were right? coming from the Palatinate, and they were, um, they were poor people. They were getting sick in the, um, in the boats, and um, they were so sick that the labor they, they could have offered, um, they couldn't offer because they were sick. Our colleague here at Penn State, um, Greg Rober, 
has um, a, done a wonderful scholarship in this field. So if you're interest, interested specifically in the Pennsylvania Germans and what happened in the Pennsylvania colony, I might recommend that you look into his work. It's R-O-E-B-E-R. -E um, I'm arguing in my book that Franklin, this um, text, this pamphlet you're referring to, um, uh, is a pamphlet that is taken by um, those who you know, express concerns about the ethnicity of German speakers as um, they denigrate Franklin for that. Um, he established the Pennsylvania Hospital. He established the school. He even sought to establish with David Armbruster a printing press that used German um, uh, in an effort to help Germans come to terms with the culture shock they were experiencing. Um, people of wealth were having difficulty and were becoming um, you know, abusive toward their servants, and their servants were frequently German speakers. There was a misunderstanding in the language. Um, the English people didn't want to learn German, and the German speakers were unable to learn English. And so when orders were given in a household, um, even Deborah Reed Franklin was known to swat um, Catherine, their uh, servant. And, um, you know, um, it seems as if Franklin couldn't abide this, uh, didn't. <laughs> didn't think that appropriate. And so I, I do believe um, I agree with your inclination there and, and write about it, that um, the English school was to assist the assimilation, for good and ill, the assimilation of the German speakers in, um, in the Pennsylvania colony. I did have a second question. Um, I could be incorrect in this. Didn't Franklin own one or two slaves? He did, yes, and, and he did in the 1740s and 1750s. And what did he write, if anything, about the slavery question? Yeah, John, he um, owned John and Peter. He took Peter with him to London, and Peter, as soon as he got in London, ran off. Um, and Franklin knew where he was, but didn't go seeking him. Um, some scholars want to castigate Franklin for um, owning slaves and for selling them. In fact, uh, he did um, publish advertises that slaves were for sale um, in the print shop. Um, Franklin, you know, uh, was interested in, I'm arguing in my book, um, Benjamin Franklin and the Ends of Empire, um, he was interested in supporting, in supporting imperial Britain. The prime way to do that was to create commercial wealth in the colonies from his perspective as a commercial artisan. Um, my inclination is to think he didn't think too much about the slavery question until he um, saw these schools and through Deborah Reed um, was told about the schools of Anthony Benizet, the Quaker whom I mentioned. Um, and uh, he was much persuaded by Deborah's um, report about Benizet's schools and by the associates of Dr. Bray of London, whom I have also made reference to. So that by the 1760s, he's suddenly beginning to have an understanding of the impact of slavery as um, an effacement of humanity. And it's that argument that he transforms. When he talks about liberty um, in the colonies in the, 70s, in the 1770s and 1780s, um, he talks about, um, he phrases it in the way that it was frequently phrased in his day, that England um, forced slavery upon the colonies. So you begin to see him starting to um, write in such a way that um, struck a better chord, a higher chord, with the liberal pose um, he had established early on. By the um, 1780s, he was um, president of the Pennsylvania Abolition Society, and his last writing um, is a um, biting satire um, about slavery. Did that bring him into a lot of conflict with his Virginia colleagues in the Commonwealth? Uh, yes, Congress? it did. 
Yes, it did. Um, Franklin was one who tended to prefer not to speak to issues than to argue. And so um, when he found that some people from the North, like, the, like John Adams, um, was trying to tell people in the South about what they thought, um, he, his pose was one of mediation. Um, he was in conflict. He was known to be in conflict. Um, but having spent his life in England and then in Europe, he understood the absolute importance of con political consolidation um, because the United States were so fragile. Thank you for your questions. I love your very informed. Thank you. Uh, this is not so much a question as an observation that uh, Franklin really never could have made it to high public office in present-day America because of his liberalism in religious affairs. In uh, a letter written in the last months of his life to Ezra Stiles, president of Yale, he aligned himself with those who questioned the divinity of Christ. Mm -hmm. And this was not volunteered information. It was written in response to a letter from Stiles that, first of all, asked whether Franklin could send to Yale a portrait of himself. Mm -hmm. And second, by the way, I know a lot about you, but I don't know anything about your religion. Would you tell me what you think of Jesus Christ? And uh, this it's a was wonderful written, exchange. I think, three months before Franklin died. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. I love talking on Franklin because I love the information that audiences sort of know. It's one thing that's really just lovely about talking about Franklin. Um, he's such an important figure in our culture that we do bother to read about him. And this is a perfect instance, this um, situation with Stiles. Thank you very much. It's a very wonderful observation. I think Betty Moore down here was interested. Thank you for coming, Betty. <laughs> um, I just wondered if you, you alluded to Franklin and libraries and lending, and I'm wondering if there was more to say about his development of or support of or anything else about the lending library system. Mm -hmm. Within the Junto, his artisans group, they developed their own lending library, and then he realized that it was extremely important, this sort of access to education. He didn't want the junto to get any larger. He wanted to sort of keep it because he thought its usefulness as an avenue of inquiry would be lost. You know, it would be like a, taking a seminar of 15 and enlarging it to 300. It's lost, this sort of um, intensity of inquiry. Um, and so he helped Philadelphia establish what became known as the Library Company of Philadelphia. And finally, by the end of the century, this became a public library. It was a membership-based library. You contributed a certain amount of money to it, and it is still. Um, you contribute a certain amount of money to it, and you can become a member, and then you kind of have access. You can have privileges of use of the library. Um, Franklin uh, sent books to the library company um, from all over, from Ireland, from Scotland, places he visited, um, from England. When he visited Germany, he sent books from Germany. Um, so he also, in addition to helping formulate these programs, um, actually many of his letters are about what to include. He actually, as he was setting up the library, sought the advice of James Logan, um, whose library probably was unsurpassed um, in the colonies um, in, in his day. And so James Logan 
um, James Logan's model of what a library should be is one that Franklin followed. Thank you. Okay. Oh, okay. So I hope it's one I can uh, answer. <laughs> you you mentioned um, um, Franklin's desire to assure the re relocation of indigenous populations to reservations, and I'm wondering was that as opposed to letting them run wild, that is free, or as opposed to shooting them? Ah, I didn't make my chronology clear, and I'm sorry for that. Actually, in that part where I'm talking about the indigenous people, I'm talking about the middle of the 19th century, and I'm talking about the interest of the federal government to, um, you know, to get those who were settling within the colonial, the, the state's boundaries, um, you know, to displace the native populations that were there. Um, I do want to say one thing, however, with regard to Franklin and Native Americans, if I might, um, in answer to your question. Um, uh, Franklin was involved in several different treaty negotiations with Native peoples. Franklin, um, and this goes to my point about his use of print to inform, inform the population, Franklin printed those treaties um, as pamphlets when he got back from those treaty negotiations. He thought that the best means of um, working with the Indians was not to insist upon displacement, but rather to find a way that Indian peoples and um, settler peoples, um, the Germans, the Scots-Irish, um, and the English speakers um, could live side by side. He thought the best way to do that was, yes, by way of assimilation, um, to uh, sponsor trades for Indian peoples, but those who were willing to live side by side with colonials, he wanted to see peace occur. Um, we have a sense of this from his narrative of the late massacres. Um, there was um, what was then called a massacre of Indians in Conestoga, the Lancaster area. Um, of Pennsylvania, and um, this was a massacre against peaceable um, Indians who um, had done nothing wrong. Um, but it was a massacre based on the fact that the um, farmers in the environs were being attacked by Indians uh, farther west, and so they wanted to take it out on all Indians, um, not unwilling as they were to recognize the difference. And so Franklin was concerned because there was a march of the farmers on, um, on Philadelphia, and Franklin was concerned that violence might occur. Um, in my reading of Franklin, I find him to be averse to violence. Um, and so I take um, his early position with regard to Native Americans to heart um, as I read his views about empire. He admired the um, British trading system, um, which allowed for um, a sort of equal opportunity of trade. He didn't like the um, fact that the colonials were vending alcohol on their own outside of an established system because um, he witnessed himself the difficulties that um, could accrue if um, these mixed populations got together um, and alcohol was present. Good question. Thank you very much. I just I do I, I've studied Franklin and Native Americans. Some of my publications are in that area. Um, wonderful way to be able to conclude. I, Thank you very much. Yeah, for I was hoping we'd give Carla a round of applause for a fantastic, not only a fantastic lecture, but very thoughtful responses to terrific um, questions.